Well, I'm privileged to open God's Word because God's Word is sanity, right? God's Word is what keeps us sane. God's Word is what is baseline for how Christians should think and what we should feel passionate about. God's Word is what clarifies our minds in the midst, midst of a turbulent society. If you're like me, you've uh, taken up watching the news. Maybe you don't watch the news, but for me, I didn't really pay a lot of attention to the news because it bored me uh, to just kind of hear things drone on and have stuff repeated over and over again on 24-hour networks. And now it's just interesting. There's always something happening, always something to uh, pay attention to. I was watching uh, Donald Trump's condition uh, all through, I think, was it yesterday or day before, and all the dynamics that are happening there and what it's going to mean politically. It's, it's interesting to me. It's intriguing. I know. I'm growing, I guess, or I'm digressing, depending on how you think. But um, I did think uh, in the earlier service I did this, I'll do it again. I think we should pray for our president, um, pray for his health, and pray for our country. So let's do that now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we live in a free country. We thank you that we live freely in any country because we're in Christ and because we have Christ and because Christ, you have us. And Lord, we thank you that our citizenship is heaven. Our citizenship is not here. We're passing through, but we are participating in this world as your citizens on heaven, we are on earth, um, living a citizenship under a governing authority. And Lord, we thank you for our president. We pray for his health. We pray for his recovery. We pray for um, stability as we progress towards an election and a um, time of contemplation for the state of our union and country. We commit it all to you. We commit our president's health to you. We pray he would recover. We pray for um, Vice President Pence, we pray, Lord, if he is assuming some duties that he didn't normally have, we thank you that he is in Christ as a believer, and we pray that his witness and testimony would be strong, and he would be Joseph-like uh, right now in the world, the watching world, as uh, Joseph from the Old Testament was Pharaoh's viceroy. We thank you that that we have a believer in our White House and we thank you, Lord, for our country. We give it to you. We know that times are turbulent, but Lord, we want to be stable. Times are um, upside down and we want to be right side up with your word and with your truth. We want to be ready. We want to be equipped. We want to be strong to speak up when we're supposed to speak, to hold our tongues when we're supposed to not speak. Let us be discerning. Let us be uh, soldiering along as uh, Christians in your army, in this world, which is your world but right now is uh, drunk with the devil's schemes. And we pray that we would be light in the midst of darkness. Children of light for your glory. Give us uh, equipment now. Um, fill us up from your word. Let this be a filling station where our hearts are filled with truth. And I know this is a timely word in this world we live in. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm going to ask you to charge right ahead into Matthew chapter 4. Matthew 4 is uh, giving us what... The exposition of scripture always gives us, which is a timely word, which coincides with the culture that we live in. And if there's no way to script it, there's no way to uh, see God's design before it's happening. But the word of God is timely with uh, a culture that's always screaming things that are contrary to scripture. The incompatibility of the word in the world is amazing. They, they, they just seem to like, like opposite, um, opposites attract. They're, they're like, they're repelling each other. You know, the word of God is, is, is different than the world. And we need to be grounded in truth and be ready for what God needs to say to us, right? In a world that's speaking other things. And so let's go into the Bible. And what, let me just say this before we do. We just prayed for the president who watched, uh, who would admit that they sat through the entire uh, presidential debate, the first one of those? Yeah, I know, some of us, uh, cheapishly. Uh, how cringy was that? I just got to say, it, it was cringy. It was, uh, it was awkward because it was so passionate and so, uh, so demonstrative with people talking over each other, even the moderator trying to get control. 
And I watched it in part for entertainment's sake because I knew it was going to be a heavyweight bout. But I'm also just watching with intrigue to see what's going to happen. And it's, it's a nervy time and that was uh, an, a display of nervousness. But I want to ask a question. Why do you believe that the participants were so passionate? Why was there so much emotion filled in that debate? You can say, well, politically, the stakes are high. But I would say on a deeper level, I want to just put this out before you. Uh, people, the, the two debaters, President Trump and um, you know, former Vice President Joe Biden, they're identifying with their political platform. They're identifying with what they stand for. And so when one or the other pursues to go in contrary, in contrast to that political platform, it's deeply personal. Politics right now is probably the most personal as it's ever been. And so when someone says something contrary to what that position is, emotion spikes, things erupt, sparks fly. People are identifying with their political parties like never before, and it's more polarized than ever before. Emotion is filled with uh, with the idea that you feel like you're being personally attacked. When you feel like you're personally attacked and somebody's getting in your grill about who you are and what you stand for, it can be very tempting. Well, how are we supposed to be as Christians? I just want to clear the decks for a minute. I'm not saying you should not be um, you know, identify with a political party. As voters, we should vote. We should appreciate our freedom in that regard. We should submit to governing authorities. So we're connected in that way. But there's a, a superseding identity that you need to dial into right now like never before. All you have is Christ. We just sang it. We are Christians. We are. Christian means uh, identifying with Christ or little Christ. We carry the shield for Christ. We put on the armor of God. We, as Romans says, we put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Literally, we are Christ to live as Christ, to die as gain. We are Christ in this world. You've heard it said, we're the only Jesus that someone will ever see. We are bringing Christ to the world. We need to model that and live that in turbulent times. The debates are one thing, but our life is Christ. And we, the, the Bible and the gospel calls us to live in contrast to that emotion. We need to live in a counterintuitive way because we have complete solidarity. We've won the victory. We've conquered sin and death. This world is not my home. This world will burn up and everything in it and we get heaven. We're in Christ. That's who we are. We are the Lord's Christ in us. The hope and glory, we are in him. Our highest passions should be to be about the Father's work. Just like Jesus was while on earth, he left us here to be his body. We're his hands and feet, right? We need to remember that. Our passions should be singularly focused on him, supremely focused on him. So I want to look at our text with that in view. Identifying with Christ and identifying with his mission. His mission. What's our mission right now for being Christ? What does that look like? Well, this passage is about Jesus calling disciples, making disciples. What a mission. What a life. This is what he gave himself to, making disciples. At the end of your life, you're going to sit on your bed or wherever you'll be and you'll wonder, who did I win to Christ? Who did I disciple? Who did I put my heart into? Did my family members make it into Christ's kingdom and his family? Did my friends, did I say something to them? Or did I hold back? Was I bold or did I hesitate? That's the evaluative scorecard that you'll be thinking through in terms of your life's investment. All we have is Christ. Our identity is in Christ. We need to know his mission. That's what we'll find here in these verses before us. Matthew 4, 18 to 22. This is where Jesus is calling his first disciples. Listen as I read. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. 
Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left their boat, left the boat and their father and followed him. Well, if you're taking notes, Jesus' call to follow him, it begs two considerations. Jesus' mission, calling people to follow him, Making disciples, it begs you to consider two things. First, I want you to consider the mission. Consider the mission. What is this mission? What we have here is Jesus who is at the Sea of Galilee. Galilee is uh, Capernaum, and that's where he has relocated himself. He grew up in Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth. That's where he was as a boy and a teenager. He went and began his ministry after his wilderness encounter with Satan. He began his ministry um, being baptized um, by John, being declared the Lamb of God uh, at the Jordan, but then also took up a preaching and baptizing ministry, preaching solo, preaching a gospel of repentance, repent and believe and be baptized. So he's baptizing in the southern region of the Jordan. And then you have by the Dead Sea, you have John the Baptist up there. John the Baptist is incarcerated. He's taken in by Herod Antipas. That's Jesus' cue to say, now I'm gonna begin to go and mobilize my ministry on the northwest portion of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum is a town that's a little bit bigger than the town he grew up in in Nazareth. And now he's there. This is his post. This is his mission. This is his ministry to go make disciples. He's moving from being preacher, itinerant preacher, traveling evangelist to recruiter. He's still going to preach, but he's recruiting now. He's widening his circle. He wants to raise up influencers. He wants to influence people to be influencers. And this is his mission. He's walking by the Sea of Galilee. You see this in verse 18. Walking is a kind of a casual thing. It's as you're going along, it speaks to the spontaneity of ministry. We in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, verse 19 says, go and make disciples. That's an aorist passive for you Greek sharks. But that just means that as you're going, as you're moving in life, as you're moving along, meeting people at work, in the highways, byways, meeting people, your neighbors, your friends, encounters, re-engagements, Facebook friends. Wait, I haven't talked to you in a long time. We're Jesus to them. So as Jesus goes, we go. He walked. He's just walking by the beach, walking along the seashore, and he sees two people spontaneously. It's by the Sea of Galilee. I'll just mention a little bit of that. It's uh, big enough for storms to kick up and break boats apart. I've never been there, but it's uh, 682 feet below sea level. So it's a basin type area with mountains above, and it created um, some pretty heavy Uh, weather dynamics where you could have a sudden squall or uh, storm um, kick up. Jesus was walking through fishing towns here. So there were nine fishing towns in Galilee in this area. And uh, he was walking through different fishing sort of nautical towns because the fishing industry was strong there. That's why fishermen would risk going into a sea that could break their, their boat apart. We recognize uh, fishing dynamics as Alaska is known for its fishing and fishing industry. And this is where Jesus was uh, in that sort of context of real life dynamic dynamics, winning fishermen to Christ. He's choosing fishermen, not the intellectually elite, not the religious, not going to the synagogues. He's not trying to win rabbis at this point. He does go to the synagogues. We know that. And there are synagogues even in Galilee, but he's going to the beach. He's going there to see the fishermen, to go to laborers. Now, just because they're fishermen who are skilled in a trade, it doesn't mean that they weren't raised in Christ. It doesn't mean they weren't raised in the Old Testament, looking to the Messiah, I should say. They were raised in the word of God, I believe. I believe they were primed to hear and know about a Messiah who was coming. That is part of why they recognized him and responded in the way that they did. These disciples that were being called by Jesus. We shouldn't fall prey to think that they were stupid or illiterate or anti-intellectual. John uh, would write uh, the Gospel of John. He would write three epistles. He wrote the book of Revelation. You have Peter who wrote first and second Peter who preached at uh, Pentecost. So you have strong thinkers who are also strong laborers. Sometimes the best availability or ability for the gospel work is availability, 
right? That's what these men were. They were primed and ready. And yet Jesus is just moving along in his work, in his pursuit by the Sea of Galilee, verse 18. And he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. He saw them. A lot of times I think we believe that Jesus is... Um, living a life that was scripted out before him like an actor who's read the script ahead of time and then he's just fulfilling it. But no, Jesus is just fully human, fully God, but fully human, living in deference to his heavenly father, submitting and being moved along by the Holy Spirit, laying aside, having laid aside the independent exercise of his full attributes. They're all at his disposal, but he's laid them in submission before his father, putting them on the back burner so he can walk and move humanly, being tempted at all points yet without sin, seeing people in front of him. And right here, he lays his eyes on two who are fishing, who are casting a net into the sea. And he says, aha, I'm going to make disciples. I'm going to see this as God's will in front of me, right before my eyes, to win these people to myself, to my mission. Simon Peter being listed first is by no accident. This is all part of the providential design. It's Simon and Andrew, two brothers, but Simon is mentioned first. We know more about Simon Peter because Peter is a leader. He's a leader amongst leaders in the 12. He's always listed first in the list of the 12. Peter is known as having a foot-shaped mouth because he always spoke before he thought, but I don't want to dog him too much for that. Maybe it's because I do the same thing, (laughs) but I would say this, leadership is taking risks. Leadership is putting yourself out there. Leadership is saying, I'll answer the question. I'll put myself out there. I'll make myself vulnerable to being wrong. And sometimes he was right and sometimes he was wrong, but he was always bold, right? He said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You are blessed, Simon Barjona, to see that Jesus was Messiah. In the same breath, uh, Peter then says, listen, no, 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 you will not go to the cross. We will keep you from going to the cross. We will bar you from that. And Jesus rightly diagnosed that that was a spiritual attack from Satan, said, get you behind me, Satan. And so Peter was at times affirmed for boldness, blessed in boldness, and at times rebuked in boldness. But he was Peter. And the path of boldness is the path of Christianity. Jesus was being bold. He's calling disciples. We're called to be bold. We're called to be like Peter, the first disciple that's called here in this text. There's uncommon camaraderie in this text too. Peter and Andrew, we don't know as much about Andrew. Peter, James, and John are in the intimate circle with Jesus. Andrew's not part of that, but nevertheless, Andrew is called. Andrew's different than Peter. Not everybody has to be Peter, right? Not everybody's the same personality. Not everybody's the same mix, but they're all called. Every Christian is called, and this is Andrew, and he's Peter's brother. Peter's brother. Peter, who's called the little stone or the little rock, Simon, renamed by Jesus to be this. They're brothers in the faith. Many of you know know I have a brother in the faith, an older brother, a taller brother. He's six foot six, 230 pounds of a brother. It made for great basketball competition and dynamic wrestling um, events growing up in my household. It's amazing that we're both still here and um, fully up and ambulatory. However, He is a a gospel preacher. He uh, probably has already finished preaching his sermon in Atlanta, Georgia today. And I'm up here in Anchorage and we both preach and we both are carrying gospel light and gospel torch together. And we do that in friendship and in love. And not only do we have stories from growing up, but we have uh, camaraderie and discipleship and desire and, and church life together. We talked about what I was going to preach today, yesterday on the phone, I talked about what he was going to preach. He's finished Second Corinthians today, Lord willing. He knew what I was going to preach to you this morning because it was in my head and in my heart. And that's the joy of ministry. And when you have family in ministry, it is a beautiful thing. This is the, the privilege that you can have in the gospel. And Jesus is, is recruiting active helpers. He's recruiting those who are fishermen. Now, Fishing is something that is, is not necessarily my thing. I grew up as a little boy fishing in creeks and rivers, and I enjoyed casting a line out and catching carp of all things, like mud-eating fish, but they fought, and it was a lot of fun. And so for me to see some of my kids fish and enjoy that, even one on a very um, intimate and um, deep level, is gratifying for me. 
Fishing is something where it takes patience, it takes timing, it takes skill, it takes uh, you know, preparation and, and baiting and all of this. And so the idea of that being a picture of gospel outreach is by no mistake. Jesus is a fisherman fishing for fishermen who are fishing. He, he wants to build this concept that we're supposed to go out and fish for people. We're supposed to win people. We're supposed to put ourselves in a position as we're walking along to fish, to cast a net, to try to win people to Christ. There's no greater purpose in life than to win people to Christ, to be a soul winner, to be a fisherman, to to catch fish. It's more exciting than catching a fish. And it is exciting to reel something in and pull it up on the beach. I don't really like gutting it and doing that stuff, but I've done it. You know, it's exciting, but Far more exciting than that is winning a heart and a life to Christ. I know Peter and Andrew here were fishing in a unique way. The net word here in the original language speaks of a circular net. And so they were casting a circular net out onto the water that was had sewn in weights or weights sewn into the perimeter of this net so that when it was splayed out like a frisbee, it would land like a circle on the face of the water and the weights would take it down slowly down to the, the ocean's floor or the, the lake's floor and it would capture everything inside that net to be pulled in and the fish would be in there, pulled up to the surface, pulled onto the beach. In many ways, we are Christians who are casting our net, fishing for souls, casting it out there onto the water, capturing people who are, who are down in the dark abyss of their own sin and confusion, who need to be pulled up, not to their death, but to their life, to be saved on the surface, to see Jesus. Jeremiah sixteen sixteen speaks of the net being like a judgment, fishers that were sent to catch people like hunters. Matthew 13, 47 through 50 speaks of a drag net that, that comes behind a boat and it's pulled all the way in as the boat comes in to the shore, posted on shore and the boat pulls it in to sweep in everybody that's in the net's way. It's a picture of judgment where in the end times, whether you are in Christ or not, you're going to have to, you have to come to terms with Christ. And those are pictured on the beach as some fish that are thrown away and some fish that are taken. You have angels in heaven that one day will send the goats to judgment and the sheep into heaven. This dividing that's taking place. Well, the net picture here is all positive. It's all affirming. To be a Jew was to be someone who would would have a mindset that would be more exclusive. And so the idea of gospel fishing, being fishers of men, was a completely mind-blowing concept to the Jew. Judaism and being Jewish or being an Israelite was, was to be safe and secure within your covenant people. Secure within your ethnicity, secure within having God's law and knowing the true God outside of the world who had no idea who he was. They stood as a light in the world by being distinct, by being separate, where some would proselytize over, but many would perish, and the Jews knew the true God. However, what Jesus is doing is he's flipping this on its head, and he's saying, instead of inreach, we're going to do outreach, We're going to do outreach. It's not us for no more, shut the door. We're to go out and we're to cast our net as we're walking. We want people to join us. We want to see people and see people come to Christ. We want to see souls that need to be one for Jesus Christ. This is Jesus' passion and Jesus' mission. This should be our identity, fishermen, being fishers of men, calling people to Christ. Rabbis back in the day would would look for disciples who would be pursuing them. They would walk along and they would stand out distinct. And just like the nation of Israel, they would want people to proselytize and come to, come to him. And so if you were a worthy learner, someone who was pursuing the rabbi, then you might be allowed to be his disciple. Jesus, on the other hand, turns that around and he pursues people. He's the pursuer of the disciple, of the follower. So this is the call to fish the call to join this ministry, to call people to follow after you. It says that they were casting the net into the sea. Why? Because they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. 
That phrase, that combination there of follow me and I will make you fishers of men is intriguing to me. We're going to see in a minute that this wasn't the first touch point that Jesus had with Andrew and Peter, but he is for sure wanting to seal the deal at this point and say, are you truly a follower? A follower or a disciple is a believer. We're called to make learners, to make disciples. It's the spirit of God that actually does the work in the heart, right? But we're called to cast the net and say, will you follow Christ? Will you believe? Will you be a learner? Will you grow in the Lord? And so Jesus is doing that with these two, saying, follow me. Literally, walk after me. Come with me. It's not just follow me in your heart and then stay doing what you're doing. Literally, follow me. Come after me. Learn from me. Be a learner. And I'll make you fishers of men. In one sense, the following and then the doing are synonymous together. When you were called to follow the the Lord Jesus, and you decided to follow the Lord Jesus, guess what? You were recruited into his mission and his mission work. You were called to believe and to call other people to believe. You were given your fishing gear, your fishing pole. You were equipped. Go fish. Being a Christian is identifying with Christ and identifying and doing his mission. That is what it means to be in Christ. You're in Christ and you're a part of his mission simultaneous it's a together thing it's a selfless mission and guess what as one person put it it's the best cause in the world do you need a cause right now do you want your cause to be november 3rd is that your only singular cause for where your emotion is going to be or do you want to be excited about jesus mission today i want to call you to that today to, to now i was sitting in uh Southern California this weekend, and I was with a pastor friend of mine down there, me and my oldest son, and we were at a restaurant called Hook Burger, and I I like that place. It's interesting, and uh, I'm sitting there, and it became a memorable moment because this pastor who makes me look uh, depressed and unenergetic um, is just, you know, lively, and and he's, he's talking, and he's asking me about my life and my son, about his pursuits and where he's going in life and all this, and the waiter comes up to take our order, and and, uh, and then he takes it and brings the food back. And when the food was laid before us, the pastor goes, okay, what we're going to do right now is we're going to pray. And I just wanted to ask you, sir, as our server, is there anything we could pray for you about? Just really, you know, we're going to pray and we're going to ask God's blessing on this food right now. But what's going on in your life that we can pray for you? We would love to pray for you right now. And I'm like, wow, this is awkward for me. Even. Man, I'm, I'm feeling it. So, so then, then the person just sort of sat there. You know, and, and so he just carried the conversation and said, well, you're not leaving, obviously. So why don't you just stand here and let me pray for you in general and we'll do that. And so he's praying, you know, that heaven would come down and this person would believe and repent of his sins and identify with the death, burial and resurrection. And oh, by the way, bless the food. We're so grateful for it. In Jesus name. Amen. I'm sitting there going, man, okay, what's going to happen? Well, he left and the pastor just reassured us. He said, well, whatever else happened and if anything happened at all in his heart, this server will never forget that encounter he had with us today. And I thought, wow, okay, that's just a way to evangelize. It, it's an interesting way to try to do it and try to connect with people and make disciples. But this guy was not ashamed of fishing. He was doing it. So what was the response of Peter and Andrew. Let's, let's go there. Verse 20, immediately they left their nets and followed him. Whole deal. Now, what we're talking about here is their occupation. They're making a decision in this moment to say, I'm dropping. It's abruptly dropping. That's the language. I'm abruptly dropping the nets. I'm going to follow Jesus right now. I'm going to leave my nets and follow. What does this mean? I mean, they, they didn't put Jesus on probation. They didn't con- consult with their parents. They didn't read a book about Jesus first. They didn't um, uh, seek counsel. This wasn't a trial period run. They were all in. And I think the reason why is because in their hearts, they knew that they had found the purpose for their life. That's what it means to be a Christian. There's a lot of ways we identify ourselves, and I'm guilty of it, just like you are. I know how you think, I would think, because I know how I think. We have the world's purposes that drive us, but really, what supersedes this world purpose drive in our heart is Christ. And what are we supposed to do about it? Make disciples. 
That's what matters. That's what matters. It's how we're gonna, it's how we're gonna assess ourselves. Did we get about the work? Did we make disciples? Did I share or did I sit? Did I hesitate or did I act? They did not hesitate. They drop the net and they go for it and they tell people about Jesus immediately. It's the word euthus. It's used all through the gospel of Mark. If there's an immediacy, it's acting without hesitation. Jesus in that instant was answering who they were and why they were here. Here's your identity and here's your purpose for life. This is it. And they knew it. So how did they really decide so quickly? What were they committing to? Had they heard Jesus teach? Had they seen him perform a miracle? Well, if you read the Gospel of Matthew within the harmony of the Gospels and in the harmony of the Gospel of John, then you'll actually understand that this was not Peter and Andrew's first encounter with Christ. So it's interesting that way. If you look at with me at John's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 35 through 42, You'll read that Jesus in an earlier period, um, in, and the time is, the timeline is not disclosed to us, probably in the, the region where Jesus had been baptized because he was affirmed by John the Baptist um, in this context, he encountered Peter and Andrew. Listen as I read the next day, verse 35, the next day again, John the baptizer was standing with, the, with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. So I guess the two that were with John said, oh, that's the Lamb, got it. That's who you've been preaching about. We're gonna follow Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, who are you, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was, here we go, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, Andrew's claim to fame, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon. So he's encountering Jesus and he says, I got to go get my brother. I'm seeing something real and special to me. And so he goes and gets his brother. His own brother, Simon, said to him, we have found the Messiah. By the way, how do you witness? You just call your brother and say, I have found Jesus. He's given me my identity and he's given me my purpose. We have found the Messiah. We found him which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. How do you get somebody? You just bring him before Jesus in the word of God. Just brought him there. Jesus looked at him and said, so you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter, the little stone, the little rock, Peter. That's your name. I'm giving you your identity. Now, I'm not saying that this was conversion or not, but we know that the full life commitment came later in Matthew's account, but this was an early, earlier seed sowing time where the hearts were being moved to follow Jesus and see him as Messiah. What did those disciples do after they saw Jesus? Well, they left Jesus at that point earlier, the John 1 encounter, and obviously they took up their trade and went fishing. This is exactly what they did when Jesus died on the cross, by the way. Remember Peter? He denied Christ three times. He's discouraged. He's racked in guilt. Jesus is dead. The whole mission is sort of over. He's discouraged. And what does he do? He says, John 21, I'm going to go fishing. I'm going back to my old identity. I thought it was Christ. I'm going to identify out there and just, just kind of sit in my guilt in a boat in the Sea of Galilee. Jesus came resurrected and restored that relationship and restored Peter and launched him and relaunched him into preaching ministry to start the early church. So he had identified earlier, Jesus did. But there is something that happens in the heart, like Peter's heart and Andrew's heart, when they saw Jesus the second time. And I want to attribute this to to the work of the Holy Spirit. 
The Gospel of John, um, if you'll kind of go back there or, or stick there for a minute, opens up the scene of Nathaniel and Philip and their belief in Jesus Christ. And the word seeing is a, is a key word in John. It's also used by Matthew. It's sightedness. It's when you see Jesus, not just with your physical eyes, but with your heart. And when you grab your brother or you grab your friend or you grab somebody and you say, I know Jesus. I really do. I really am saved by him. You get the boldness to cast the net. You put it out there and you see what's going to happen. And you start saying that one or two things are going to happen. People are either going to see Jesus for who he really is, or they're going to be blind. And it's up to God as to whether there are fish that are going to be in your net in that moment. But it's sightedness. And I don't want to belabor this, but John 1, 43 to 51 picks up where we left off in John's account. It says the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. So he's going 70 miles north up to Galilee, found Philip and said to him, follow me, follow me. Same idea, same wording here. Be my disciple. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So there you go, fishing town. Philip found Nathanael. So Philip's doing what Andrew did. Philip goes, finds Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of David. How do you witness? You tell people you found Jesus. That's it. Nathanael said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's a skeptic, a cynic. Philip said to him, come and see. There's that word see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, here it is, I saw you. There's that seeing word. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus is saying, I saw you. And Nathanael is saying, no, no, I see you. With spiritual sightedness. That's what happens at conversion. Jesus promised he would see more, not just being impressed that he had seen him under the fig tree. He said, you will see greater things than these. Truly I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the promise of eternal life. I want to look at the second encounter here. Take a few minutes to do that in these final verses. We have two brothers and then we have two more brothers. Brothers in the gospel. It's amazing. We'll see this beginning in verse 21. This is James and John, the sons of thunder, the physical sons of their father, Zebedee. We find them all in a boat. Jesus is moving either upshore or downshore, and I assume he's got... Peter and Andrew right behind him because he said, follow me. They left their nets and they were following him. So now Jesus's circle of influence has just widened. It starts with just a few, right? Here we are today, still speaking of Jesus. What is the greatest way for a ministry to expand? What's the greatest way in a worldly sense for a business to expand? It's by word of mouth. It's by populating through relationships. That's how things grow. And so what you have is Jesus with two behind him. And now he's encountering Two more. It says, and going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. James and John in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. You have uh, here a connection that I don't want you to miss right at the top, and that is two brothers who are connected in ministry or in a trade under their father. That is not insignificant. Mark's gospel chapter one, I think verse 20 talks about how, how, John, how uh, Zebedee and James and John are all in a big boat and they're in a big fishing boat. This is not a small little craft. This would be a larger craft, big enough for hired servants to all be in there. And so Zebedee has a crew. He's got a crew, he's got a fishing boat, and what they're doing at this point is mending nets. It's catartizo. It's literally putting things back together, getting the nets right to be able to go out on the boat and fish. This is, uh, uh, you know, dangerous work. It's hardy work. It's strong work. And that's the fishing trade. Zebedee with two, two sons in ministry, or I'm sorry, in, in this trade with him. And so there's something of a cost here. The first consideration in terms of Jesus Christ and identifying with Christ is we need to consider the mission, which is making disciples, being fishers of men. 
But secondly, when you think about following Christ, you need to think about the cost of following Christ. This is point two in the outline. The cost. Consider the cost of following Christ, verses 21 and 22. Here, two brothers have to consider the cost of leaving a father who loves them. That's the cost. That's what we're dealing with here. Leaving someone you love. When you love Christ, you're recalibrating your thinking in terms of your employment, your job, maybe your wage, where you live, what you do, what you're willing to do. But oftentimes when you go to Christ, it will put relationships at risk. And why is that? I just want to talk to you heart to heart for a second. When you love Christ and you love God's word, that love for Christ is so strong and so real that people that used to love you in a superficial way will sometimes be challenged in their love and in their ability to relate to you at all anymore. Is that true? I'm sure if we pulled the room, some of you would say through tears and heartache that you had to sever relationships or people literally severed themselves from you because you went for Christ. When you love Christ, it brings the accountability of Christ in the room. And when you love Christ and you're light in a room and someone is still in darkness, their darkness is exposed even more. And so you have conversations with people about your affection for Christ. And what happens is, is oftentimes it drives a wedge or a sword in your relationship because people don't want to be near you because it makes them feel guilty. They feel guilty. They feel the weight of their sin because of your relationship with Christ. In this case, this is different. I'm reading into the white spaces, but here you see none of that with Zebedee. Zebedee isn't barring his sons from leaving. Um, His sons, they see Christ. They're going to follow Christ. And Zebedee, I think, has trained them to do so. The other severing of relationships that happens in the gospel is not just negative, but it's also positive. There are times where you are literally transplanted away from your family members, those whom you love to go serve on mission somewhere else. Your fishing arena is somewhere else apart from your family. And God just does that. Here, there is no contradiction between sons that would be obligated to take care of their father. First, First uh, Timothy chapter 5, verse 18 says, if you don't take care of your own, you're worse than an infidel. But sometimes taking care of your family doesn't mean that you're staying there exactly in proximity with them. And the Lord will move you at times in a positive way to expand mission, to expand ministry, and to fish somewhere else. And I think we have to accept that in the gospel, right? And realize that God is moving his people around to advance his kingdom for his purposes Listen to this. You're in Alaska to fish. You are. You're in Alaska to fish, to be fishers of men. That's why you're here. That's what the Lord is doing in your life. Make no mistake, because this is our call, which is to make disciples. James, he paid a a high price for the gospel. Just learning a little bit about him. James is not the half-brother of Jesus, Um, Joseph and Mary's son, James, who ended up writing James, the epistle, the letter in our New Testament. Uh, That James is also one of the pillars of the early church, the half-brother of Jesus. Jesus being the son of God and also born of the Virgin Mary. That makes that James the half-brother. There is another James that's mentioned, but this James in particular is James, the brother of John. He's um, the son of thunder. And he um, was obviously a firecracker. Both brothers were. But this, this James was always mentioned in the context of his brother. You'll always see this James as James and his brother John. And this James was martyred early in the church. Stephen was the first martyr. James was soon to follow. Acts chapter 12, he was put to death. Uh, Acts 12 verse 1 says, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John. Again, always grouped as brothers, killed him with the sword. James died for the faith. John outlives all the apostles. James dies early. John outlives them all. He's he's the beloved disciple of Jesus. He's always the one whom Jesus loved. He laid across Jesus' chest. Faithful disciples took, faithful disciple took care of, of Mary. 
in Jesus' um, stead when Jesus died. John is the one who wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He wrote Revelation as he was exiled on the island of Patmos until his death. This is John. John, one of the intimate three with Peter. It's amazing. And James as well. Peter, James, and John. Amazing people. I'm indebted to John. First John was used in my life to convict me of my sin as a 17-year-old when my older brother fished me out of the water with First John and hooked me with Scripture. And it was from First John that I was convicted of my own hypocrisy. Aren't we glad that John followed the Lord in this moment? If you see it in the text, you have... Uh, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. They left the boat, they left the occupation, and they left their family for the sake of Christ. That's what happened. What were they doing? They were mending nets. Um, you had hired workers, hired servants who were there. Mark 1.20 says that. They're mending next. It's catertidzo. It's putting things back together. And I think there's some rich imagery here where Jesus is going, look, be a fisher of men, be a mender of hearts. Go mend for the gospel. Mend, put lives back together for the gospel's sake. Create unity of heart and spirit once again, 1 Corinthians 1.10 speaks of unity instead of division. 2 Corinthians 13.11, aim for restoration. Same word, catertidzo. It's putting things together, restoring people. It's the broken bone that heals stronger than it ever was before. This is the ministry of the gospel. Well, they left for that without hesitation. A costly ministry immediately, verse 22, euthus. They followed the call, they left the boat and their father and followed. Four men now are listed here. They're going to go right into a ministry in Galilee of teaching and Jesus healing diseases and affliction, proclaiming the gospel, bringing the kingdom. But I want to ask this question. Why should you make disciples? Why do it? Why do it? Can't we just sit back? We're in Christ. We're good. Well, let me just give you a couple points. We should do what Jesus did. Just get into a Jesus mindset here with scripture. As you're going, make disciples. Do what he did. People want to follow people. People are always following people. That's why people follow people on Instagram. That's why people friend people on Facebook. It's true. People are following things on their phone all the time. Everybody is a learner and people are learning all the time. Why can't they learn of Christ? Get people learning of Christ. It's what Jesus did. It's what he commands us to do. Second, Jesus commands you to make disciples. You're supposed to go out there. You're supposed to teach. Why do Bible studies? So you can learn the Bible. So you can teach people the Bible. Learn a little bit more than somebody else and teach it to them. No better way to know the Bible than to teach the Bible. If I wasn't accountable to study the Bible, there's no way I would study this much Bible during the week and know as much as I know. It's the great privilege and burden of the pulpit, but it keeps me in the word. Get yourself in a position where you are teaching disciples. I've taught people the word of God. There are people I have taught and trained that are around the lower 48 in churches as pastors. I've just done it. I'm nothing special. I know the grades I took home. My parents live streaming know the grades that I took home. I'm accountable in that way. I'm nothing special. I just made myself available for it. And really, because I found that I could do nothing else, I don't have any other skills in this. So God kind of just zeroed in on me in this way. But make disciples. Give the word of God. I went down to California as one, in one express purpose as to win a couple to come up here and serve in ministry. And they said, yes, we'll move our wedding date earlier and we're going to come in January. We're going to live up here and minister with your church. That's what we want to do. They were one to this. I didn't do it. It was what the Lord had sown in their hearts, but they want to be here. They want to serve in the youth ministry. He wants to go to seminary here in our extension. This is discipleship and I will pour my life into him in discipleship. And you need to be pouring your life into other people in discipleship, making disciples. It changes the world. It's the method for growth. There was the three, the 12, the 70, the 120, the 3,000 at Pentecost, and then whole cities were one to Christ. We're called to go. We're called to send ourselves. We're called to leave ourselves places. We send ourselves through ministering to people 
And then they transfer other places. We transfer and people that we've ministered to stay and it advances and populates the gospel around the world. It's investing in someone. It's an eternal investment. It's the only truly eternal investment that you can ever make. And it's the greatest relationships that you can ever have. They are one of a kind relationships of friends that stick closer than a brother, right? Discipleship is why you study the Bible. It's passing the baton on. I already mentioned that before. Well, I was in college, I was a beach lifeguard and I was um, a guy who was posted on uh, the north end of the outer banks of North Carolina, which is still in Virginia. It's a place called Sandbridge. It was a very calm beach usually, but about eight or nine times out of the summer season, it would get really turbulent and scary and riptides would come in and sometimes they would try to swoop people out into the water. Those were so strong, sometimes we'd find ourselves swimming out to the horizon to pull people back. On a turbulent day, though, you could never do it. If somebody was swept out to sea, it would be to their peril. And so we would, on those particular yellow flag days, stand on the edge of our lifeguard stand and wait until we were going to go in. We would blow a full-out alarm and pull people in. If a kid got in past their knee or their waist on a day like this, we would be pulling them out of the water. I was uh, two lifeguard stands down about 100 yards away from a colleague who was on an end stand, and he was a um, running back for the Maryland Terrapins in college football. He was a very fast athletic runner, but a very slow, bulky swimmer. And so he's on the end and he was watching a family in his water that um, was all together and they were suddenly getting out farther and farther in out over their head. I heard over my radio, um, the head lifeguard seeing that from where he was positioned and him screaming in frantic expressions to say, go, 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 get that person out of the water. He runs, we uh, transition down to cover his water. He gets out there, he's a fast runner, but slow swimmer. He swam all the way up to the man who's the head of the household. All the kids were saved, he's farthest out. And just as he reaches, the guy goes under, gets dragged in the bottom under a rip current and dragged all the way down underwater a mile later down the beach. He resurfaces dead and lifeless, 70 pounds heavier than before. What we would say at the beginning of each lifeguard day was we've never lost anyone up to this point. Let's not start today. That was a different day. That's a day where I actually still am friends with. uh, It's a day that's so memorable that I'm still friends with the guy who was the head lifeguard at the time. We still talk about that moment. And it wasn't that that lifeguard swam too slowly to get to that person. It was that he hesitated too long to react. Remember the, the word that's repeated here in the text, immediate, immediate, immediate. Immediately they dropped their nets and followed Christ. We need to follow Christ. If you're on the edge of whether you're gonna follow Christ or not, drop your nets and follow Christ. Sever it all, leave the world and follow Jesus Christ. If not, it'll be to your own peril. Not physical death, but eternal death, lifelessness forever. And we, as God's lifeguards, need to go out, don't we? Don't hesitate. Don't second guess. Don't wonder if you should go. Go on the attack. Reach out. Cast the net. Carry the cross of Jesus before people and say, we have found him. He's worth it. This is the mission. Consider it. Consider the cost. It's worthy work.